may be seated. And what could argued to be one of the most consequential political speeches ever made, the aspiring politician quoted from the scripture, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Anybody uh, know where that quote comes from? I want to take a guess. England? <laughs> not, a, not England. It does start with an E. It is in a proverbial form, but it's not from the book of Proverbs. It's from a different one of the books that we refer to as the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is correct. Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Uh, that also served uh, as one of the numerous quotes that uh, Charles Schultz used in his Peanuts comic strip. Uh, Snoopy went to that verse when he began his book, Theology and the Dog. <laughs> now, there's another passage, however, that was quoted in that same speech that comes out of our text today. In fact, that, uh, that text was so central to the theme of that speech that from that quotation from our passage came the title for that speech. Can you tell me what that quotation was? A house divided cannot stand. That speech by Abraham Lincoln, many think to have been the speech that propelled him eventually into the presidency and into that time period that we uh, know had such great influence not only in our country but around the world. Well, we're going to see that passage in Matthew chapter 12 verses 22 through 37. This is a relatively long passage, and we may not make it all the way through it, but it really does, I believe, uh, hang together. So I'd like to read uh, Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37 for our text this morning. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, 
Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, this passage opens with a healing incident there at verse 22, but we don't really know much about it. We, we don't know who was healed. We don't know who brought him to Jesus. We don't know exactly how Jesus healed him. We're, we're, not even, we're not even told explicitly that Jesus cast out the demons or demon involved, but we would infer that's, that's what happens. Effectively, all we're told is that the man was afflicted and he was completely cured. Uh, a, a very short, dramatic opening to this passage, right? In, in a sense, we, we have the whole drama right here. There's, there's drama all over the place in biblical narrative. Look for it. Okay, one of the ways that truth is communicated in scripture is through drama. And what could be more dramatic? I mean, think of how much of a drama you can make in this passage. This poor man, afflicted so terribly, Somehow, impaired by the oppression of this demon, from being able to see, from being able to speak. And then Jesus, we would assume probably with a word, or a few words, frees him from that bondage. You, I mean, you can't get more dramatic than that, can you? And, and yet Matthew doesn't really focus our attention there at all. In fact, the miracle just serves as a lead-in to what happens after that. So he doesn't focus on the drama of that miracle, as great as it is. He rather focuses on what happens after that. And so look at verse 23. Here's the, the first response to it. You have a lot of pairing in this passage. Patterns of pairs in this passage, and here's the first one we have response to the first one in verse 23. All the people were amazed. Uh, make that word amazed as strong as you can. Astounding. Because the word here means this. Well, to use common vernacular, they were blown away. They were astounded by this, this miracle. Wouldn't you be if you saw, if you saw something like this happen? They're amazed, and, and they're filled with wonder. That's a logical response, isn't it? I mean, if, if you saw something like this, it would be a natural thing to wonder about the meaning of this. What's going on here? What's happening here? And 
And so they express that. This one, this one they say, can he be the son of David? Is this one who performed this miracle the son of David? Now you know what they're referring to there. They're referring to the promise given to David that one would sit on his throne. Remember, Nathan the prophet gave David that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Daniel wanted to build a house to the Lord. He said, I have a palace and the Lord's worship place is still a tent. I want to I build a great temple to the Lord. And, and Nathan, inspired by the, by the Lord, says to him, uh, you can't build a house for the Lord, but the Lord is going to build your house. Using house, of course, there metaphorically for his family. And he gives him this promise there in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, so far, we're prepared to think, well, this is fulfilled in Solomon. But listen to what he says next. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. A little bit later, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, obviously, there's a partial fulfillment of that in Solomon. He's the one that built the temple. But not a complete fulfillment. You'll notice that often with Old Testament prophecies. Keep your eye out for that. There's often a partial fulfillment that takes place in, perhaps even in the lifetime of the, of the prophet. But there is always a fuller fulfillment of that that takes place in the life of Jesus. Remember, he said, I came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. And so, so look for that ultimate fulfillment of prophecy in, in Jesus. Now, this is not the first time we've seen people thinking this. The son of David, of course, is the one that they sometimes refer to as the anointed one or the Messiah. We know from history the messianic expectation is at a fever pitch in Israel right about this time. Many people have correctly read Daniel and figured out that the Messiah is about due. And so they're looking for him. In fact, there are a number of false messiahs that rise up in this period of time. Some of them try to mount a revolt against Rome and wind up executed along with their, their followers. So when they say son of David, can this be the son of David? They're talking about the Messiah. And for the, the Messiah for them, the son of David for them is the one who is going to come and establish the political and military kingdom of Israel once again. Once again, Israel will be at the top of the nations that's what they're looking for. And, and over the years, that messianic expectation began to associate other things with the Messiah, including a, a miraculous age of plenty and wealth and health. And so they see this miracle of healing and, and they say, perhaps this is the son of David, the Messiah. Back in Matthew chapter 9, we saw two blind men doing the same thing. Jesus is passing by. They hear that he's passing by, and they cry out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And they actually, with help, pursue him. 
into a house where he enters and, and are healed. Son of David. Well, very reasonable and logical that they should think that. But look at the other response to this miracle in verse 24. Now here is, we will see, a very illogical response to this miracle. The Pharisees heard it. And their response in some ways reflects that of the people in the text. It says, this one, could he be the son of David? The people say, and then the Pharisees say, this one, he is casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, or Beelzebul, it's sometimes rendered. This is a name for a pagan god, by the way, of Canaanite origin, one that would have had ancient roots in Canaanite religions that uh, predated the conquest of Canaan by Israel. And so it came into common language in, by the time of Jesus' day as a name for Satan, for the devil, because it had been associated with that demonic kind of idol worship. And so there's the accusation. It's not the first time we've heard this either, is it? Again, going back to Matthew chapter 9, Verses 32 through 34, there is a, a freeing of a man from oppression by demons by Jesus. That man was mute. He evidently was not impaired in his sight, but he was mute. And the Pharisees say he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus has warned his followers that even they will hear this kind of language. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Some of our Christian brothers and sisters, even now, are being so maligned. But here, of course, this is an accusation directly against Jesus. So we have these two responses. Now, Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity for some important preaching and teaching. So beginning in verse 25, knowing their thoughts. I've seen that before in the gospel too, right? There's a lot of repetition in the gospel, repeats things to help us appreciate them. And we've seen, we've seen reference to Jesus knowing the thoughts of others in chapter 9 as well. There, too, they were, they were accusing Jesus, and Jesus saw through their evil intents. So, Jesus responds to them, beginning in verse 25, and we're going to see him first refute the falsehood with logic. Then he's going to affirm the truth to replace the falsehood and prove it, and then draw, draw conclusions from that. There's a sort of escalating quality to his responses, beginning in verse 25. So first he says, logically, what you say makes no sense. That's essentially what he's saying there. Look again at, at verse 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Here, here is a universal truth, universal principle. Always true. 
always true. Look at a nation divided, it's not going to continue in that state. That was Abraham Lincoln's point. The nation cannot continue half slave and half free. Something's going to have to give or the nation's going to fall apart. Of course, he, he believed the nation would come through that and unite on that issue. But it applies at every level, level, all the way down to households, right? You, you can pull examples out of your own experience. Households have been divided. They were not able to stand. So here's a universal truth, and that Jesus applies that to the situation. Verse 26, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? <laughs> Logically, what you're saying simply doesn't make sense. You know, faith is reasonable. Our faith is a reasonable faith. It is a logical faith. We don't, we don't ask people to defy their reason when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we don't, or we should not, put our logic, our reasoning aside when we become believers either. So logically disproves what they say. Now in verse 27, he's really going to become a little more pointed. Okay, we see that intensification already happening. He's become a going to become a little more pointed in addressing the Pharisees because he's going to reveal the inconsistency of their thinking. Okay, the, their accusation, not only is it illogical, it's dishonest. Okay, so that's what he's getting at with what he says in verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. You've said that it takes the power of Satan to command demons. We'll explain how your Jewish exorcists are doing. We know exorcism was being practiced in this day. Now, the genuineness of that, that would be debatable. But on the surface of it, Jesus is saying, you, you are not being honest in your accusation because you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that about some Jewish person who is seeking to cast out demons. They, they even had certain rituals they did and incantations. If you're going to apply that to me, you need to apply it to them. But, of course, they're, they're not being honest here, are they? So he's shown them to be illogical. He's shown them to be dishonest in the accusation. Now in verse 28... Okay, here's the true interpretation for what's happening. They gave the false one. Here's the true one. The most powerful statement. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, here's the only logical explanation for what's happening. That it's the Spirit of God. Satan does have a power in this world. He does have influence in this world. What to think about the example that started our text? He had power over that poor man for who knows how long, afflicting him not only spiritually but physically even. There's a power that Satan has. Jesus is going to refer to it in the next verse, in verse 29, he's in verse 29, he's going to support what he says in verse 28. We'll 
anticipate his, his argument by looking at verse 29 now. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. What's the only logical explanation for my possessing the power to command demons? Well, it's that I can bind Satan. Satan's the strong man. I can overpower Satan with a word and free his captives. That's what we see happening there, isn't it? Isaiah anticipates that, by the way. If I can put my hands on that uh, passage. It was in Isaiah 49. It comes into play later on in our passage, but for right now, Isaiah 49, verses 24 through 26. Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. If people are getting delivered from demons has to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no other logical explanation. That's what Jesus is saying. But look at what he draws out of that. The last part of verse 28. Let me read the beginning again. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here is perhaps the theme of Matthew cropping up again that we've seen over and over again. The kingdom of God. The rule of God. I know we're not used to that word kingdom because we don't have kings, but think rule, think government. It, it, this has been a theme from the very beginning. Remember in the temptation there in the wilderness, the temptation of Jesus by Satan, it's a kingdom-centered temptation. Did you notice that? In one of the temptations, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, I'll give it all to you. He has a power over the kingdoms of this world. There is a reality to Satan's power in this world. But Jesus comes preaching. We saw it all the way back in, in chapter 4 of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Later on in chapter 4, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Chapter 9 again, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. The signs point to the validity of his preaching. His teaching repeatedly described the nature of the kingdom. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches this, them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Are we getting the point? Jesus wants us to consider his kingdom central. He, he puts it right 
in the, the, the first petition of the prayer that he gives us, right? Your kingdom come. Your name be hallowed. That's just another way to speak of God being king. Seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And he tells his disciples, as you're preaching, here's your theme. Here's what you pre present. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is contrasting here then, isn't he? Two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of evil that dominates this, this scene and all of human history. But there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Between these kingdoms, there can never be a treaty signed. There can never be a compromise. And no person can claim to be a citizen of both kingdoms at the same time, not in a spiritual and an eternal sense. Peace can come only when one kingdom has utterly vanquished the other. Now think about that kingdom theme in what we're seeing in this passage. And how I think we're, we're to think of human history as a whole. Jesus says, in what I'm doing here, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yes, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is in the future from our perspective. The kingdom of God, the ultimate rule of God, that eternal peace that comes with the reign of God in the new heavens and the earth, that is something that is future to us. But there is a right now quality to this kingdom as well. Jesus is saying, you are seeing the kingdom of God making inroads against the kingdom of evil right before your eyes. He is, he is vanquishing Satan and rescuing that poor man out of oppression by the kingdom of darkness. And that is a picture of what God, through his Holy Spirit, is doing continually through human history. He is continuing to make inroads against the kingdom of evil. He is continuing to rescue people out of the darkness of sin, out of bondage to sin, and freeing them, bringing them into his kingdom. He's exercising his rule by claiming sinners for his own, causing them to be spiritually born again and to grow in godliness. Satan's kingdom is being plundered and the kingdom of God is expanding. If you belong to the kingdom of God, you are on the winning side. You're on the victorious side. Because Satan's kingdom is only declining constantly as God makes inroads into human history and saves people. That's that's going to be foreshadowing the final judgment that 
Jesus ends our passage with. Well, having affirmed that, that wonderful theme of kingdom, now in verse 30, we've already looked at 29 as the, the proof of the truth of that principle that he set out in verse 28. But in 30, now Jesus ups the stakes, doesn't he? Okay, he's, he's gotten across the idea that there are these two kingdoms. And those are the only two options Jesus says people have. So look at the ultimatum in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Notice he's broadened his address. Now, this is speaking to everybody. He was sort of targeting the Pharisees previously. Now he's expanding what he's saying to everyone. You're either for me or against me. There's only two possible responses to me, you say. There's no third option. You can't be neutral. The Pharisees have sort of set themselves up here as if they, as if they have authority and they're neutral and they're judging, evaluating Jesus. That's not the case at all. You're either an ally of Jesus or you're his enemy. You're either gathering with him or scattering. And, and here he's using the language of the Old Testament, the shepherd language of, of the Old Testament, and alluding to the use of that imagery by the Lord's prophets. Ezekiel 34 is one that is a notable example. So he's addressing everyone, but especially those who are leaders, those who are teachers, those who are, in a sense, shepherds over others. Ezekiel 34 the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the spiritual leaders of Israel. What have they done wrong? The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with, harsh, with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the faces of the earth to seek or search for them. And it goes on through the rest of that chapter. Rebuking the leadership of Israel for failing to gather the sheep. Effectively scattering them. We, we have... We have leaders in culture today that are not gathering the sheep. We have people in positions of authority from households all the way up who are not exercising care for those under their authority, but are rather using them. That's happening spiritually as well as in other ways. And so what's God's response in Ezekiel 34? He says, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Are you, Jesus is saying, one who is shepherding with me or one who is scattering? You're either with me or you're against me. In the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, there is no 
third alternative. Now he speaks again more directly to, to those Pharisees, verse 31. Therefore, see that's, he's saying on the basis of everything I've said so far, here's the logical connection between what I've been saying in verses 25 through 30 and what he's saying here. In effect, he's saying, you Pharisees said that I cast out demons by the power of the devil. And I've proven that I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. Where does that leave you? That's really what he's saying. He's pointing out where what they're saying is putting them. The conclusion is obvious. The Pharisees are sinning against the very Spirit of God by whose power Jesus is cast off. Jesus say, you think you're just talking about me as a human being. Your accusation is actually directed to the Spirit of God. And that is a sin that will not ever be forgiven. Now, let's be careful in our interpretation here, because Jesus is very careful in his explanation. You, you can tell that just by the, by the amount of space that he gives it here. He gives a warning, and then he gives the warning again, and he amplifies it. So let's be careful to understand what he's saying. First of all, what is blasphemy? Well, by definition, blasphemy is something that is spoken. Okay, it comes from a word that basically means slander slander someone's name. So, Jesus is saying, blasphemy is serious. When he says, every blasphemy will be forgiven, people, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, he's not minimizing the sin. He's labeling it as a sin, right? It is indeed a serious sin. Sin. Blasphemy is to slander the very name of God. God takes that seriously. Go back and read Leviticus 24 for the example case for that in Israel's history. Two men are fighting, and one blasphemes the name of the Lord, uses the name of the Lord in a cursing fashion, and he is stoned to death at the Lord's direct command. Israel's a theocracy, people personally governed by God. And so the sin of blasphemy is rightly judged as worthy of the death penalty. You should note, however, physical death isn't the worst thing that can happen to a person. That physical death for blasphemy is a warning that the ultimate penalty for blasphemy is eternal death in hell. Jesus is not negating that by what he's saying here. Parenthetically, it will be the sin of blasphemy for which Jesus is supposedly convicted, by the way. The Sanhedrin will judge him guilty of blasphemy because he claims for himself the name of God. And if he's not God, then that is exactly the penalty that this is But, at the same time, Jesus affirms that the sin of blasphemy against himself can be forgiven. Now notice he says, forgiven, not excused. 
there's a big difference. We live in a culture which is willing to excuse sin, especially if it's their own. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. To excuse wrongdoing is to do wrong yourself. A righteous judge would never excuse a crime. That would be unjust. So don't take Jesus' words here lightly when he says that this sin will be forgiven. He is not saying them lightly. I mean, think about it. When he says, the sin of blasphemy against me, the Son of Man, will be forgiven. How is that going to be forgiven? It's going to be forgiven because he himself will suffer the hell that that sin deserves. It's not excused. It will be forgiven because he himself will bear the penalty. Don't think Jesus is saying this lightly. And we do indeed see people experience that forgiveness, right? Paul himself, 1 Timothy chapter 1, says, Formerly, I was a blasphemer. I blasphemed against the name of Christ before I became a believer. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In unbelief, I didn't realize what I was doing. But I was maligning God himself. Forgiveness is possible, but it is at such a great price. Remember, Jesus prays for forgiveness for even those who crucify him. As he's being crucified, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Peter will say something similar in his sermon in Acts 3, speaking to the Jews there in Jerusalem. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But he doesn't say, so therefore you're excused. He says, instead, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's what's happening with the forgiveness of blasphemy. So, so don't take that lightly. And Jesus says that it is extended to those who commit blasphemy. But forgiveness is not extended, he says, to blasphemy committed against the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this exactly means, but I think that, that the best way to at least begin that discussion is to look at the context in which Jesus says it. What is he saying this in response to? And it's clear that he's referring back to that specific accusation made by the Pharisees back in verse 24. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. And Jesus has said, I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God. So for you to say that what I'm doing is the devil's work is for you to slander, to blaspheme the Spirit of God. And you know you're doing They knew Jesus was not casting out demons by demonic power. He points that out in verse 33 and following. A good tree yields good fruit. A bad tree yields bad fruit. He's using the metaphor of trees here. You can tell what's inside a person, he says, by what comes out of their mouth. A good man brings good things out of the treasure in his heart. An evil man brings evil things out of the treasure of his heart. Your evil words reveal your evil heart. That's what he's saying. And you are on dangerous ground. 
you are sinning against your own reason, against the revelation of God. And there's no excuse for that. There is a willful ignorance happening here. It's one thing to be ignorant. We, we saw that in those previous passages, right? But there is a willful, culpable ignorance. There is an ignorance that you have because you haven't taken the time to look at the truth. Or because you're ignoring the truth. Or because you're suppressing the truth. God has revealed himself in Jesus as the one who binds Satan and frees people from the kingdom of darkness for people to look at that and say this is the work of Satan is to put themselves beyond the pale of forgiveness. That seems to be seems to be reflective of an attitude that calls good evil and evil good. And a person who has reached that point, Jesus says, has gone beyond the point of no return. Now, I finish the passage by once again broadening the scope. And we'll just have to deal, look at this very hurriedly. This is 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. Now, he's not saying you're saved by your words here. What he's saying is the words you speak reveal the condition of your heart. Okay, that's the sense that he's using here. When you stand before God, it will be very plain the condition of your heart, of your relationship with him, simply by the speech that comes out of your mouth. That's what he's saying. So every word you've spoken, Jesus is saying here, is going to be either evidence for you or against you. Do words matter? Jesus says they do. It is useless for me to say, I didn't mean it after I spoke. Clearly, I didn't mean it, or I wouldn't have said it. So if, if, if even those who sin thoughtlessly, carelessly, are held accountable to God, what is to be done for people who sin knowingly? Knowingly speaking words that hurt someone else, that are destructive of someone's character, that are hurtful in some way. That's the dilemma that brought Isaiah up short in his vision in chapter 6. His book. Do you remember that? He sees a vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and he sees the glory of the worship happening there as the cherubim shake the very foundation stones of the temple, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And what's his response? Woe is me. A curse is on me, literally saying. I am lost. I, I am, literally the word means, I am disintegrated. I am undone. Why? 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Can't you identify with Isaiah there? <laughs> Think about being in the presence of God and thinking about the kind of things you've said in the past. Things that have come out of your mouth. Reflect in your heart. Probably join him. Saying, what is to be done? I'm destroyed. Well, look at what the Lord did for Isaiah then. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. Said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin They felt that searing, burning, smelled the burning flesh of that cold fire to his lips. And that vision and his spiritual truth was revealed to him that God makes the tongue for guilty mouths. What do you think was the first thing that that man had been healed? Been blind, mute, pressed by doom. What do you think the first thing he said? What were the first words out of his mouth? Don't you think they were exuberant praise and thanks to God? After Isaiah's lips were burned with holy fire and he received forgiveness from sins, his first words were of submission and obedience to the Lord's call. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And the first words out of his mouth after he was cleansed was, Here am I, send me. Jesus cleanses your heart through his atoning work so that you can say, Here I am. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you? How do you want me to speak in a way that brings glory to you? Isaiah would go on to speak words that were inspired by the Spirit and became an important part of our Bible. After that poor man in our text was healed by Jesus, I have no doubt that the words that came out of his mouth glorified God. It would be wonderful if the same thing can be said of the words that come out of our mouths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with Isaiah we confess that, that our, our words, our speech, often reveal our thoughts, which are not your thoughts. Thoughts of self-glory and pride and sin. Lord, we confess that and believe that in Jesus Christ, you've made atonement for our sin. Cleanse our hearts, Lord, so that our lips will be 
cleansed and our words will glorify you, bring good to others, further your kingdom on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 400.